Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the role of the comedian has been hotly debated in recent years with what seems like a new flashpoint every few months. The latest involves comedian and podcast host Joe Rogan, who was called out for spreading COVID misinformation and his past use of racial slurs. Vox culture writer Asia Romano says threads of the latest debate around Rogan underscore a much bigger conversation about comedy's evolving role and about morality, cancel culture, and how to be funny. We look this hour at how comedy is changing and hear from you. What do you think makes good comedy? Tell us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Comedian Whitney Cummings, in an apparent response to the Joe Rogan Spotify controversy, tweeted, Comedians did not sign up to be your hero. It's our job to be irreverent and dangerous and take you through a spooky mental haunted house so you can arrive at your own conclusions. Stay focused on the people we pay taxes to, to be moral leaders. Cummings' tweet, setting aside Rogan, broke out a much larger conversation that has preoccupied culture recently, writes Asia Romano in a recent piece for Vox, the question of what comedy itself should be. This hour, we look at the evolving role of comedy and joining me, Asia Romano, an internet culture reporter for Vox, whose latest story is titled Comedy's Existential Crisis. Thanks so much for joining us, Asia. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Zahra Norbash, feminist, Muslim, Iranian, American comedian, also a resident senior fellow on comedy at the Pop Culture Collaborative and former host of the Good Muslim, Bad Muslim podcast. Zahra Norbash, thanks so much for being with us, too. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Jason Zinneman, a comedy columnist for The New York Times. Welcome, Jason Zinneman. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Great to have all of you. And let me start with you, Asia, uh, as it was your piece that really inspired today's conversation. One of the larger conversations in comedy that you say that Cummings tweet tapped into is this question of whether comedy is meant to teach moral lessons. And I'm curious what examples you have seen of this issue or this question preoccupying comedians. I think um, some of the most prominent examples lately have been things like Dave Chappelle and his uh, sort of tirade against trans people. Um, And I think to some degree, um, 
not only is he angry at trans people for being angry at him because of, of comedy that they feel is transphobic, but he also sees this as sort of the influence of cancel culture culture on comedy as a whole, right? And I think we've seen that uh, rhetoric coming from a lot of different comedians, from people like Kevin Hart, from Ricky Gervais, um, even people like uh, Seinfeld. Like, I think there are a lot of different... Um, parts of, of comedy culture where there's this feeling that um, com comedians should be allowed to do and say whatever they want. Um, but now, thanks to you know the rise of social media, the rise of an increasingly diverse public sphere in which the audience gets to talk back to comedians and, and more marginalized communities get to say, hey, you're hurting us, you're punching down on us in a way that is not um, conducive to, to our equality. Um, I think this sometimes can feel threatening. And I think that's why we've seen such an increase in the conversation. Are you seeing that too, Jason Zinneman, in terms of this question of is the point of comedy to be funny or to teach moral lessons? Um, I, I do. There's definitely, um, and I think uh, Asia's piece, uh, uh, you know, rightly put put a finger on it. There, there's a kind of a, a new insecurity that I'm noticing in comedy specials about being didactic and preachy Huh. Um, that I think is, um, you know, kind of grown since um, the success of Hannah and uh, Gatsby's The Net. Um, I personally sort of don't, uh, don't, you know, see it completely differently and don't think this is a, a bad thing, um, but think it's a sign of a, a scene that's growing and evolving and shifting and full of all sorts of different kinds of um different kinds of aesthetics. And so in the same way that like, you wouldn't say, should a play be either um, beautiful or true? Should a play be, have a moral lesson or be, you know, not be interested in moral questions. There, there are rooms for all different kinds of theater and there's room for all different kinds of comedy. Hmm. You mentioned Hannah Gadsby's Nanette. Can you just remind us what Hannah Gadsby did in Nanette? She, I mean, she made this special, which, you know, I think one relevant point is she's Australian and comes out of a tradition of uh, comedy festivals in, in Edinburgh and Melbourne, where it isn't as unusual for a comedy show to have a, a theme and a point of view and have like an hour kind of uh, have the structure of a play. They're more, there's a more of a tradition of, of reviews in that world where the, uh, but she, she uh, had the show to net when she, she was a well-known comedian in Australia for a while. And then, the, the, you know, really, I think a brilliant special, which w was about personal experience. It was about abuse. It was about sexism. It was about me too, but it was also, I think about comedy itself and the price you pay for um, a certain kind of self-deprecating comedy if you're from a marginalized community. And I, there was a, a critique of it, which uh, I disagree with, which is that it was like a TED talk. It wasn't actually trying to be funny when in fact, there's a ton of jokes in there, even though my description of it didn't perhaps give that sense of it, but there, there really was. And so she became um, a lightning rod um, in some ways that are unfair, in some ways that are, you know, I think really healthy. She sparked a lot of debate over the role of comedy and what comedy specials can and cannot do. Mm. Zara Norbash, I'm curious how you think of the debate that that spark that Jason just described. Like, do you feel, do you feel like it really opened up comedy, or do you feel like it almost put expectations on comedians to be more conscious and aware, especially if you're part of a marginalized group? 
I thought that uh, it opened up the door for um, other marginalized folks to innovate in the field of comedy. Um, for me, I think before I saw Hannah Gatsby um, really get permission, you know, um, from a major distributor to label their work as a comedy special, um, that right to innovate in the field was predominantly held by cisgendered white men. So interestingly, um, Jason, I think it was you who said this related to um, comedians having a bit of a, a concern, a, a little bit of a, a preoccupation or uncertainty around this question of not wanting to be associated with that kind of more cerebral TED Talk-ish type of show. And you actually reviewed Moses Storm's recent show. And I'd like to play a clip from that because I think it encapsulates so much of this, of what we're just talking about, but also kind of a clever way that he gets around it. So let's play this clip from, from Moses Storm. If I was doing a modern day comedy special, you know those ones where it's like, it was like more like a TED talk? Than a, <laughs> your friend asked you like, hey, how was that comedy special? Was it funny? And you're like, it was important. <laughs> if I was doing one of those, I would make the argument that poverty is a disease on the very macro level. Because I do believe that poverty is a disease and its most sinister symptom is fear. It's something that I carry with me to this day. If I was doing a modern day comedy special, I'd make the argument that yes, Poverty is a disease. It's passed down generationally, just like a disease. There's a lower life expectancy for people born below the poverty line. It's no revelation that poverty is a major stressor, and we know that chronic stress causes damage to the cerebral cortex, the part of your brain that's in charge of risk-reward, long-term planning. Basically, all the tools that would get you out of poverty get damaged by being poor. Trying to dig yourself out of poverty in this country it's like trying to fix a scratch on your car by repainting it with a rake. <laughs> You're like, ah! that, that's the modern day comedy special. I do not want to do that. I have nothing of educational value to add to your night. <laughs> that's comedian Moses Storm's recent HBO Max stand-up special, Trash White. Asia Rana would love to get your reaction to that. Well, I think it's it's brilliant, you know, in so many ways. It sort of echoes what Hannah Gatsby did in Nanette because she did that very deliberately, you know, that that sort of tension between comedy and um, this didactic, you know, moral lecture. Um, and whether you're expecting it or not, like once you once you get it from a comedy stage, there's a certain amount of, of conflict there that that the really brilliant comedian can exploit. And I think that's exactly what Moses Storm did there, right? Like he sets the audience up for being like, oh, this isn't one of those specials, but then it is one of those specials, right? But then he sort of show, but he frames it in a way that allows the audience to, I guess, feel um, some sense of permissiveness, right? Like they're, they're there to laugh, but they're also there to um, experience his very personal recollections of what it was like to grow up in poverty and, and discuss systems of poverty um, and, you know, cyclical uh, injustice in that way through this sort of medium. And I think that um, the way that he frames it as this is not what you think it is, but it is what you think it is, um, allows, allows them to really have that, that space to, to enjoy it without maybe necessarily overthinking what they're doing. <laughs> 
Zara Nawash, do you feel like there is clearly an audience demand for the kind of comedy that that takes social concerns really seriously and also tries to have a positive social impact? Absolutely. Um, the, there are millions of people responding to this. We're having a conversation years after Hannah Gatsby's landmark special because this is a popular, uh, this has become a popular genre. And also in terms of, you know, the existential crises that we're experiencing, I think we're feeling that as a nation. I think um, so many of the great works that we're seeing right now that walk that line between being poignant and uh, funny, um, you know, land in the realm of the comedy special because they ran, they land in the realm of a personal celebration. And if we're always going to judge comedy by what we individually think is funny and what matches our taste, we're going to fall behind as audience, as comedy innovates with each mm. new de generation. Jason Zinneman, as a critic, I'm curious whether, you know, whether it makes you laugh um, is one of your criteria for <laughs> critiquing a comedy show and if that's always been consistent? Um, for sure, for sure. There's no question about it. I mean, uh, and, um, but I mean, I'm, I am, I think one of the challenges of being a critic is being alert to your own subjective response but also aware of it um, mm. and, you know, trying and inevitably failing to transcend it. Um, I think that um, it's a, I do think there, there's a problem with this discussion, which is that this, this idea that comedians, you know, have only recently started to talk about serious subjects is not true. Um, if you listen to, you know, Chris Rock's first, uh, album. Yeah. Uh, he talks about class. He talks about being poor, just like Moses Storm does. Um, you know, Richard Pryor's done great stuff. Dick Gregory. I mean, there's all these are the, the idea that comedy hasn't for a long period of time addressed um, social issues, political issues is not true. The question is, does it do it well or not? I happen to think that actually that Moses Storm special is an example of one which didn't do it particularly well. Um, but that's ultimately what I'm what a critic should look at. <laughs> well, we will have more looking at what makes good comedy after the break. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Well, we're talking about what makes good comedy on this hour of Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
We're talking with Asia Romano, internet culture reporter for Vox, whose latest story is titled Comedy's Existential Crisis. Jason Zinneman is with us, a comedy columnist for the New York Times, and Zara Norbosh, feminist, Muslim, Iranian-American comedian, is with us as well. And your listeners, join the conversation. Who are your favorite comedians? What style of comedy do you most enjoy? And why? 866-733-6786 is the number to call. 866-733-6786. And of course, if you have reactions to what you're hearing about comedy and how it's changing, you can also post those on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. Jason, picking up on a point you made just before the break about how comedy has been doing this for a long time, and it's really interesting to see sort of the consternation right now about that kind of role for a comedian. Um, But I wonder if you have any thoughts on why we seem to be turning to the comedian or why we turn to comedians to teach us lessons or or to, to show us larger truths. Well, I mean, it's a great question. I think there's many, many answers for it. Um, I mean, I think a big one is uh, technological. I mean, the comedian has always been one of the most entrepreneurial of artists. And they also, the, you know, comedy specials, one of the cheaper ones, which means they're able to adjust to new technologies faster than others. This was true, you know, when HBO started, you know, it started with sports and stand up. Um, and it's certainly true now, you know, the first big art, you know, stars on Twitter, the first big stars on Vine, you know, you see comedians adjusting to TikTok much faster and you, Netflix, um, has really, uh, globalized comedy, uh, and has also really made the stand-up special part of the meat and potatoes of the pop culture diet in a way that it really wasn't, not that they didn't invent the stand-up special, but the, the number and the amount of cultural impact a special, um, you know, from Ali Wong uh, to take one that's coming out this month can, can have, you know, is just didn't exist uh, decades ago. And I think that has a lot to do with uh, technology. Um, it's um, I think it's always been true that, you know, comedians have been able to get ideas across to audiences um, that maybe weren't receptive to them um, because they, you know, they do it with a laugh. Um, you know, it's sort of like the, uh, the spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down um, strategy. So mm-hmm. that, that isn't particularly new. But I, I would say there are other reasons too, but 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 technology is, is probably the biggest. Is Romano, do you have any thoughts on this as to why we turn to comedians? No, I, I agree. I think that's a that technology is a huge part of it I, and accessibility, obviously. Um, I also think um, comedians have always, in a sense, um, been kind of a cultural conscious uh, for um, society. Um, you know, thinking just about the the classic archetype of the archetype of the fool, right? Like the fool's job is to stand outside of the court and observe the absurdity going around around him, right? Like so, there's a sort of of moral, um, I guess, sense of arbitration that comes with that, right? Um, so, and I think the the good comedian who does that job uh, almost kind of. Uh, paradoxically puts themselves in that situation, um, which I think a lot of comedians really toy with the anxiety there, the inherent anxiety of, you know, maybe wanting to make your comedy all about yourself, right? And about your own experiences, um, which I think is partly why we're seeing, you know, so many diversity, so much diversity of of voices and um, so much, um, so much new kinds of, of aesthetics and, and types of different types of comedy, right? 
Um, because not only do we have more ways of showcasing different kinds of comedy through technology and, and various social media platforms, et cetera, et cetera, but we also have more people entering um, the comedy sphere with their own very unique sets of you know, experiences, right? But there's an inherent, I think, conflict when you um, try to both put yourself in your comedy and also stand apart from society. Um, and I think to many people who go to a comedy show, they they want to kind of see the comedian be um, sort of their their moral voice to it to a degree, right? Because I think it's probably easier to take from a comedian than it is, say, from you know, like a, a politician or um, or somebody who's in like a spiritual capacity, right? We're talking about what makes good comedy, and this listener tweets, good can mean effective, but it can also mean morally acceptable. People from Babylon to now have laughed at drunks, the handicapped, those who talked funny, quote, foreigners, the severely unlucky. So we can't say pun punching down doesn't work, but I don't think it's right. Sarah Norbosh, as I'm listening to, to Jason and, and Asia describe the role of comedians and, and why we often turn to them to learn lessons. One of the things I was struck by is you've said that you've often fought the expectation to have to give a lesson or give a TED talk or give some kind of statement about, you know, your existence. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Uh, yeah. Uh, first, I just want to give a shout out to the handicapped of Babylon uh, in that tweet. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> <So> <laughs> person with invisible disability and as a Persian, I'm kind of relishing in that right now. Mm. <laughs> I think for me, um, one of the things that stands out is that comedy reminds us of what we already knew to be true. If, if you're learning in comedy, you stop laughing. And I think this is something that otherwise folks in comedy know too well. If if you start to teach people too much about the context of your life and identity, then you lose the laugh and it stagnates. And so you have to find ways of tapping into what people already know. You know, you have to find ways to establish a shared context mm -hmm. and generate anticipation for the laugh, because otherwise any amount of confusion or concern, any amount of learning that folks are doing, they're just going to stop laughing. And so in terms of like this existential crisis that we're talking about in comedy, I feel that as an American, I don't feel that as a comedian. And I think when we have these conversations, we have to remember that like every art form and like everything in life, positionality matters, who we are performing matters. When I get up on stage and I'm unapologetic, it means something different than when a cisgendered white man gets up on stage and is unapologetic. When we see a white man with a microphone, we're accustomed to seeing a white man in a position of power. That's not new to us. When I get up on stage and I hold a microphone, that's new. And all of a sudden there's a awareness and a distance between me and the audience. And, and they're suddenly thinking about that. And I have to pull them back into me in a conversation about me and what I'm talking about, mm. you know? And so this is, this is something that I always have had to do as an otherized voice now we're seeing that cisgendered white men are also having to do this where they're not accustomed. And I think that's the crisis. 
We're talking with Zara Norbosh, a resident senior fellow on comedy at the Pop Culture Collaborative, former host of Good Muslim, Bad Muslim podcast. Also, Jason Zinneman is with us, comedy columnist for The New York Times and Asia Romano, internet culture reporter for Vox. Their latest piece is titled Comedy's Existential Crisis. You, our listeners, are sharing your thoughts on your favorite comedians, the style of comedy you most enjoy. Also, do you think that comedy that punches down can be funny, as one of our listeners mentioned that uh, they think it can be, but not so sure that they think it should be? Do you agree that comedy is in an existential crisis? 866-733-6786 is the number. 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Billy writes, I'd like to weigh in regarding cancel culture. I think that's a made up right wing phrase. What we do sometimes is boycott something or someone or vote with our wallets. When people get mad at the Dixie Chicks for their statements about George W. Bush, they burn their records. Was that canceling or boycotting? And do you have a thought on this, Jason Cinnamon, on what Billy is saying with regard to cancel culture? Oh, man, do I have to? Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, the, uh, uh, I mean, it's the most, I, my, my talking about cancel culture right now on stage is sort of like what talking about airplane food was in the 80s. Um, it's, you know, the, uh, it's, it's just a, a, a cliche. Um, yes, of course, m so much of it is um, at this point marketing um, or is trying to make what someone's saying seem more um, dangerous than it really is, um, or trying to not deal with the substance of the of the issue. Um, you know, is it true that it's easier to marshal um, outrage and protest than it was ten years ago? Yes, because of social media. So, uh, you know, comedians have always had. Um, you know, if you could go back and look a hundred years ago, there were people getting outraged about jokes um, and having blowback. And in some ways, there's more freedom now than there ever has been to tell a risky joke to a mass audience. Um, there was a time not that long ago where, you know, if you used, if you said the, you know, the phrase water closet, um, you would be taken off television. Um, we, there's, the media is so decentralized now that um, I think a lot of the stuff on cancer culture is, is overblown. Um, I would I, actually. I wanted to pivot also to say one thing that I thought was a really fascinating point that has got that Zara made that has got me thinking. Which her point, and this is something that I think a comedian is uniquely positioned to make, about um, people laugh at something that they already know is true, and um, and that if you teach them something, they're not going to laugh. And that's something I, I wonder what I'm curious what she thinks, like the implications of that, if that means that there are certain things that she would you are that th you can't accomplish as a stand up comedian because it would involve teaching the audience something. Zara, what yeah. do you think to what Jason's asking? Um, the, I'm completely honored that Jason took pause uh, and agrees with me 100% on all things. Let me continue from there. Uh, <laughs> I think, yeah, absolutely. Um, when, the, especially when I'm crafting a joke and especially when I have to find a way to fit a story into a joke, um, the, if I start from a place where the audience is gaining information, they just pause and it does turn into a TED talk. 
And there are so many times where to, to not have that stagnant moment of establishing context. And because in the power dynamic between me and the audience, and in the power dynamic between me and the audience in the United States, when there's something that they want to be educated about, about me, the moderate liberal position is for me to educate them on that and to bridge the gap of difference. And, and that's a conversation that we're having right now socially. You know, what is the power dynamic on that? And what is my role in that as the otherized person, right? So that's already a hot topic and something we haven't resolved societally. So then now there I am on stage and my goal is the laugh, you know? And so <laughs> what I've done for so long is find ways to um, circumvent that. And you see so many comedians use stereotypes as an opportunity to tap in to what we already know to be true so we can hold on to that tension, not turn it into a learning moment and move with that momentum. And so I personally found it so powerful to see somebody like Hannah Gatsby say, here's when I'm going to pause to teach you something. And here's when I'm not. And here's when other folks know what I'm talking about and I'm going to speak to them. And here's where I don't care if I've lost you. And here's where I'm going to work to pull everybody in. Yeah. And that that delineation of audience, you know, is something that I came into comedy learning from watching W. Kamau Bell do so deftly. Um, yeah. So uh, there, there you go. What do you think, Jason? Well, think yeah, go ahead. go ahead, Jason. No, I appreciate that because I think that's really fascinating. And I think I'm sure like, uh, I guess the, the, the thing that makes me wonder is the implications of that. Cause it does make me like, does that mean if it's true that comedy is you need somebody to already believe what you think in order to, to get a laugh, does that mean that the sort of status quo of comedy is ultimately conservative? Which is yes. to say that well, I mean, I think we're having a <laughs> yeah. conversation about cancel culture. Usually, <laughs> Sorry, I think no. Go right ahead. We're having a conversation about cancel culture in comedy, in part because there is this sort of bad faith engagement, right, with the the material that that the comedian is doing, right, and with the and with the response that the audience gives them back, right, like the idea that um, if if the comedian tries to take you too far in one direction um, and the audience reacts to that, then the audience is trying to cancel the comedian, right? Or if the, mm -hmm. um, the super progressive comedian tries to take the audience too far in the direction of quote unquote political correctness, which I think just to sort of go back to how cliche this is, I think cancel culture is really just an escalation of the political, the political correctness argument that, that we were having in the nineties. Like it has not progressed in any way, but <laughs> except as a, a tool to have conversations like this, right. To spark debate about, yes. you know, things that maybe I think in the past could have just been left to, you know, this is the comedian starting controversy and that's not inherently a bad thing. Talk a little bit more about the role of the audience. I'm really interested in this as I'm listening to all of you talk. Zara Norbosh, I know you have some thoughts on this in terms of the role they play, the power they have, and at the same time, frequently the limited understanding they have of how comedy works. Yeah, uh, I think one of the things that's exciting for me right now, and especially in this conversation as well, is that when it comes to conversations on comedy, we have a really simplified view. You know, there's if I get it or not, you know, um, and we don't really think about what it means to innovate in the field or what the default audience has been for so long and how that's shaped stand up. 
um, and how access shapes stand up, you know, the opportunity to be able to get up five nights a week and effortlessly just focus on jokes is a, that's nightclubs, you know, and it was just with a conversation around consent culture that we were able to shift that discourse and expand it and think about, you know, is it a safe space at a bar, you know, when, when I'm performing as a queer Muslim Iranian American, especially, you know, uh, in the wake of 9-11 when, um, you know, all, a lot of the time when I would get up on stage, I could feel a tension between me and the crowd of what am I going to answer to, you know, and in, even in some of my solo performances, some of the reviews were, you know, this doesn't answer for 9-11. So when, when hmm. that's right, when that's social discourse, you know, getting up on a stage in a, in a bar environment, that that's not necessarily a safe space for me. And it doesn't matter. Right. Because that's my field. That's, that's the field that I'm trying to, um, I'm going to say infiltrate, be rad in rock. (laughs) So I think our role as audience is to show up, is to show up, to have these conversations, to stay present in it, to, to be a part of the flow of the art that we're moved by and invested in. In internet culture, we have this context, or excuse me, we have this concept called context collapse, hmm. which is super useful in thinking about these things because it basically posits that um, as an idea grows and expands, if it goes viral or whatever, as it travels across the internet, it interacts with different audiences who have completely different contexts that they're bringing to the idea, right? And so the more the conversation grows, um, and moves around, like the more um, the original context of that conversation and all of the, you know, maybe the work that was done to to bring a specific audience um, around, you know, these are the this is, this is the context in which we're having this conversation. This is how far we as a community have evolved, right? Um, then the conversation moves over to another community that hasn't done all that work, hasn't um, doesn't have the same experiences, right? And maybe wants to has a completely different agenda. Um, but you're still so you're still having it's the same idea, but you're having many many different conversations and many different levels of experience um, being brought to that idea. And I think we're seeing something very similar happening now. Hmm. We're talking with Asia Romano, internet culture reporter for Vox, Sara Norbosh who described herself as a feminist, Muslim Iranian American comedian and a resident senior fellow on comedy at the Pop Culture Collaborative. Jason Zinneman is with us, comedy columnist for the New York Times. So are you, our listeners. 866-733-6786 is the number. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram is where you can find us at KQED Forum to post your thoughts. And you can email us forum at kqed.org. More after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about what makes good comedy, how comedy is evolving, and whether or not it's in an existential crisis, which is the title of Asia Romano's piece, Comedy's Existential Crisis in Vox. Asia's an internet culture reporter for Vox. Zara Norbash is with us, a comedian, uh, former host of Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, the podcast, and uh, resident senior fellow on comedy at the Pop Culture Collaborative. Jason Zinneman is also with us, a comedy columnist for the New York Times. Join us at 866-733-6786 or post your comments online. Uh, to your point earlier, Jason, about how long this has gone on in terms of comedy having a message, Jennifer tweets, Comedy Central has been doing comedy with a point for years since The Daily Show and all its spinoffs, as well as Saturday Night Live and lots in between. What's changing is how the absurd is no longer being perceived as such, but being rallied behind as valid truth. Imagine if Andrew Dice Clay had a following that he was speaking absolute truth to as proof that sort of notions are completely valid. Let me go to caller Catherine in Oakland. Hi, Catherine. Hello. Uh, yes, I wanted to comment. I don't know that it's an existential crisis, but I've noticed that audiences, particularly young audiences, are losing a sense of irony and kind of a sense of the nuances of language. And I can't help but attribute it to our sort of more visual culture now. We're used to sort of looking at screens. We don't talk on the phone as much. And I just feel there's a lot of subtleties of language that are getting kind of lost, uh, particularly as, as, as this conversation has gotten so serious mm. and meaning-laden. <laughs> so anyway, that's my comment. Thank you. Okay, Catherine, thanks. Um, you know, Zara Norbush, I want to go to you. I don't know if you have a reaction to what Catherine just said or to the previous comment from Jennifer. I, I was struck by the seriousness with which we take our comedians, but also this point from Jennifer, about how we perceive what they say as such valid truth and, and how the absurd is viewed as valid truth. I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think that I think that's there's so much to unpack there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, to Jennifer's point um, that I see that as a curatorial problem, you know, where um, where we get our news sources now is so varied. Right. And um, we we really hang on each other's words at family dinners, at uh, gatherings um, online and uh, from comedians that we value um, who speak truth to power and have these platforms to shake things up and, and get people to see what we've been waiting for them to see because our country is in turmoil and the stakes are very high. And when the stakes are this high, comedy does suffer, you know, because if we are actually concerned, then we stop laughing. We're worried. We're too worried. Um, so, you know, separate from that and not so separate from that, we see uh, a lot of, you know, younger folks who um, are here for change and um, are are practicing that and are practicing that self-assertion. And I find that exciting, you know, um, and the, the, as a comedian, I'm not afraid of that. You know, there's been plenty of times where I've gotten up on stage and I've made a joke and there's been pushback and I've had that conversation and I've, 
I've had to do a comedian's work of figuring out how do I fold in these nuances or do I fold in these nuances? Do I let that tension linger or don't I? And I think that's a conversation where, again, we're asking whose joke is it, you know, Um, and who is the default audience, as Jason pointed out? Has the default audience been a conservative um, a body? I think, yes, you know, we're finally seeing that shifting and we're also seeing that backlash and um, that tension. Um, hmm. I think you... that is so important too. The yeah, emphasis on Romano. irony, right. The emphasis on irony um, in humor, I think is really kind of a double-edged sword um, because on the one hand you have, um, I think, know years and decades of people doing ironic quote-unquote comedy um as a way to voice and and explore really unpalatable ideas and i think you have a a younger generations of comedy audiences i think are increasingly wary of that because they're aware that that comedy isn't always for them and that that irony sometimes does mask um real bigotry real prejudice and um and real um problematic social social values right and and I think that, you know, younger generations realize that, um, that the type of comedy maybe that punches down or punches that appears to punch sideways, um, that couches itself in ironic, um, rhetoric isn't always the type of comedy that ultimately reveals itself to be progressive, you know, and to, to be on the side of the people that it's pretending to be on the side of. So I think there's a whole lot of nuance that gets lost. Um, but I think partially it's getting lost because we are in an age of, of disinformation, misinformation, and bad actors all around. And that's, that's polluting and clouding everything that every discussion that we have. Yes. Um, I'm so struck by, by that experience for the audience that you're describing, Asia Romano, and also thinking about that, along with what you just said, Zara, about allowing attention to exist. Because I think what you're describing here is who gets to feel tense as they're right. listening to the comedian. Right. For a long time, it didn't matter that I didn't appreciate the joke, you know? Um, and and now that's shifting because political discourse has shifted and social discourse and awareness around power dynamics has shifted. And I, I don't think that's something that we say no to. Well, Ruth writes, I love stand-up comedy as a method of cultural revelation as an observation and instigator of debate. I believe strongly in free speech within the context of humor through observation, education, storytelling, and point-making on a stage. What's okay on stage may not be okay in the office, and if you feel hurt by a joke, it's important to remember what you don't represent. It's important to remember that you don't represent all the people in your demographic. Everything isn't for everybody, and the people who get outraged by what a comedian says are also free to express their outrage. But expecting a comedian to be silenced due to that outrage is problematic because it's not all about them. I'm curious to get your reaction, Asia Romano, to that. Now, I think uh, this absolutely goes back to the the tension around who is this joke for um, and what the what the target audience is supposed to feel. Right. Um, you know, is the joke about them? Is it indicting them in some way? Right. Um, and I think that as a society, um, we, as we become increasingly polarized. Right. For so, so many reasons, I think 
part of that, the backlash that comedy is facing now um, is because there are many people who don't want to go to a comedy club necessarily and feel that tension that they've been feeling every, every other part in every other aspect of their lives. Right. Because, um, you know, if you're a a cisgendered white man, for example, you know, you, you have a lot of guilt to wrestle with and that you're being asked to wrestle with every single uh, day of your lives lately. Right. Um, and some people can handle that better than others. Right. So when they go to a comedy club and the, and the person on stage, um, maybe doesn't reflect their own experiences. Sometimes they don't know how to deal with that. And I think the fact that comedy increasingly asked them to is a mark of how um, not only how diverse comedy has become, but how willing and willing people are to to challenge their audiences, right? Um, to take them in uncomfortable directions and trust that the audience will follow. Um, but I think not everyone follows at the same pace. Well, we're getting a couple of other comments that I'd like to read. And Trish in Richmond writes, for example, I think comedy is so important today because comedy can speak truth to power. We have suffered through all kinds of insane public rhetoric, including a president who told over 20,000 bald-faced lies while in power and basically got away with it. It creates such a bizarre sense of unreality that it's a relief to hear someone call it out. It's sad that we need to rely on comedians to say what's true in our troubled world. And Jeff writes, I don't think it's a question of whether or not humor must teach, because I recognize that Joe Rogan isn't a teacher. However, it is a question of whether humor is a license to lie or spread hatred. Didn't Trump use the excuse everyone knew I was just kidding while everyone knew that he wasn't? I would love to just hear, and let me go to you first, Jason Zinneman, because I also think these comments kind of touch on it. But I am curious if you have thoughts specifically on how you feel like comedy is evolving. We've talked about what comedy is and has been um, at the moment, but where you see comedy going? Well, um, I think one direction, which was pointed on out by um, a listener earlier, whose name I, I'm sorry, I forgot about, um, she was talking about language and people now thinking increasingly visually. Um, that one thing that I noticed is that, you know, comedy and comedy specials, the jokes are not necessarily all about language anymore. Um, and increasingly, the visual jokes are more and more sophisticated. And that's because of an audience that, you know, grew up not only with social media, but also who understood how to edit um, video in a way that older generations really didn't. Um, so, you know, where it used to be, if you were working on a joke, you would go to a club and you would try it and you'd realize, oh, this part works, this part wouldn't, take the part off that would not. Now, if you put a video up, the skills, and you, you see what works and see what gets a lot of hits and see what doesn't, it's a similar process, but the skill set is different. You develop, uh, w- one thing that uh, younger comedians have that older ones didn't, for example, is, is um, a gift for editing visually. Um, and, uh, sometimes the joke isn't where you make the cut and where you add a cut. And, um, that's something that, that I think, uh, people have now, if you look at say like, uh, Bo Burnham's recent special coming out of the pandemic, which mm-hmm. was very popular, you know, a lot of the jokes in that special are, he, he's somebody who is very sensitive to language. He's, he's made specials about, uh, language in the past. But a lot of the jokes in that special are visual jokes. 
Um, and I think we're the comedians yes. are responding to the culture in the sense in that they're making uh, more and more uh, visual medium. Well, Bob Burnham is also a YouTube star, so that you know he he came up through YouTube, right? So I think how the comedians are becoming famous has a lot to do with you know their approach to comedy. Zara Norbash, I I'm also curious about where you see comedy going and your place in it. Yeah, you know, um, Bo Burnham's such another great example of innovation happening in comedy where when it's a cisgendered white man doing that innovating, you know, we're excited and we're leaning in. Um, in terms of where comedy's headed, I hope we continue to lean in. I hope that we continue uh, to, to borrow a problematic phrase to begin with, I guess, but to I, ho I hope that we continue to participate in the innovations that are happening in comedy by otherized voices that are doing something different. And I hope that we continue to not assume to know where I stand on it is, you know, comedy is so physical, but I'm, when I'm on stage, I'm often letting the tension sort of guide me. And I'm often, um, constantly learning myself. Um, it, it's, it's so present and in the moment. And I think that's why we really count on it, um, in, in current events and, and, our pop culture discourse. Um, and so right now I'm going to say, I'm just curious. Yeah. I know you spent a year studying comedy, right? Or <laughs> yeah, I did. What was your big takeaway from that? I think the most fascinating takeaway that I had was after interviewing a hundred comedians, nobody had the same opinion on what a stereotype was. What do you mean? Some people thought that a stereotype was an embarrassing truth. And, and, and <laughs> yeah. and, and that was that's a little troubling <laughs> yeah yeah and a lot of com a, a lot of comedians thought that and uh some people thought that a stereotype was just you know um a story that gets told too often and that's it you know uh and and some people thought that a stereotype was a falsehood specifically mm. Um, and I believe a stereotype to just be a story that's just told too often. It doesn't matter if it's true or untrue. There's not enough stories, you know, about us. Um, yes. And just these conversations and and having this opportunity to talk with Asia and um, Jason and Jason <laughs> and, and uh, to to hear people's thoughts on it and where and where we're at in comedy is the it's a very exciting time for stand up comedy. The, the conversations that we're having now the I wish we were having more of in 2019 and I, I can't wait to see where it takes us. And I, I hope that people don't get disheartened by it. I hope that people feel courageous in them. We're talking about how comedy is evolving and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to caller Art in Santa Rosa. Hi, Art. Hello, Mina. Thank you. Um, you are one of my favorite people on the radio. I must say that. Oh, you, thank you. You're so articulate, and you, you're such a great interviewer. Wow. Anyway, uh, I'd like to say that uh, George Carlin is the top of my list. I just love George. I'm so sorry he's gone. Um, the irony of it all is I also love Norm MacDonald and Kevin Nealon, uh, both of which never had to use the F word. Carlin used it all the time, and I love them all. And they can do it in, in such, uh, it's just wonderful how they can craft mm. that. Also, well, um, uh, I'm sorry. The name escapes you. <laughs> yes. Uh, 
Maria Banford and uh, all the female comedians, the women on Saturday Night Live are just wonderful. Uh, next to music, comedy is my favorite thing. Uh, I just can't say enough for it. I wish I could be a stand-up. Some of the things I say that aren't funny, people laugh at. So, well, all right. Yeah, thanks for... Yeah, well, thanks for answering our question about who are your favorite comedians, and I'm glad you like talking about comedy, uh, even though you don't think you'd make it as a comedian. Um, and we have some more comments coming in. Will from Oakland writes, as was mentioned earlier, African-American comedians have incorporated social commentary into their routines forever. Think Dick Gregory, Godfrey Cambridge, Red Fox, Jackie, Moms, Mabley, Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, and Trevor Noah. Okay, Trevor is not African-American, but he is a member of the African diaspora. We've been laughing to keep from crying for generations. So, Asia Romano, I have not yet asked you the question of where you see comedy going. Would love to hear what you think about that. Um, I think it's a really uh, complex question because I think there are so many different directions, right? You know, right now, I think um, as a society, we're sort of struggling to to keep a unified um, even a unified version of reality, right? Um, so I think uh, where comedy heads depends on which sector of comedy you're talking about, right? Like, are you talking about um, the the more progressive comedians on the left who are are really trying to be innovative and trying to incorporate their own experiences and and maybe um, increasingly diversify the the scope of of comedy and the the spectrum of technological platforms, et cetera. Um, or you talking yeah. about people like Joe Rogan, who are obviously like, you can argue about whether he's a comedian or not at this point, um, <laughs> but people who associate him with comedy. Right. Um, and he's obviously gone in a, like a much more reactionary direction. Right. And a lot of comedians have like Louis CK, right. Like they've taken their comedy and sort of run with it towards these much more reactionary positions. And I think, um, that speaks to the the spectrum of polarization that we face right now, just in general. And I think comedy just reflects that. And I think we're going to see um, more of that before we see less of it. <laughs> Jason, we have 30 seconds, but do you think that we are in a healthy comedy scene, a comedy scene that you've described as healthy as one where there are many kinds of humor? Or do you think we're in crisis? No, no, I think, I think we're, you know, as much as any scene in the middle of a pandemic <laughs> that, that, that depends on live entertainment and people getting into a, a dark room together and breathing the same air, um, you know, as any, as healthy as that can be, I, I think comedy is, is, is in a, a relatively good place. Well, Jason Zinneman, Zara Norbosh, Asia Romano, thanks to all of you for talking with us today. My thanks also to Ariana Prail for producing today's segment. Forum is also produced by Judy Campbell, Blanca Torres, Grace One, and Caroline Smith. Susan Britton is the lead producer for the 10 a.m. hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer and Katie McMurrin. Our interns, Jennifer Ng and Paul C. Kelly Campos. Our executive editor, Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and chief content officer, Holly Kernan. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.